After weeks of chaos, Afghanistan has now a new interim government. But despite the promises of inclusion and consideration for women's rights, the country seems to be living in a flashback that is 20 years old. And in Kenya, the military took over power from President Alpha Conde, accusing him of undemocratic tendencies after he had amended the constitution last year to allow him to run for a third term. In the US, the Supreme Court's decision not to block the abortion ban in Texas shook, among the others, the Department of Justice and the Biden administration. Now, a new lawsuit is underway, attacking the southern state for the apparent unconstitutionality of their new law. Finally, the French Supreme Court ruled that the cement company Lafarge was complicit in crimes against humanity after it paid terrorist groups so that it could keep operations in Syria. Hello everyone, welcome back to this episode of the Human Rights Pulse News Briefing, where every other week we address some of the biggest human rights news and events. I'm Laura. And I'm Nigel. After our summer break, we are happy to be back on air and with a lot of issues to address. Let's start with Afghanistan. The country has fallen to the Taliban after what has been dubbed as a messy retreat of troops of the US and the NATO. President Trump had reached an agreement with the Taliban that he would be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan by April 2021. However, when President Biden in came, he extended this timeline to September 2021. During the course of uh, the retreat, the Taliban had taken the major cities of the country and finally taken Kabul last month. The Afghanistan government broke down and the president fled the country. And while last Saturday the U.S. remembered the victims of 9-11, which can be somewhat considered the beginning of the Western occupation of Afghanistan, many people in the country, and especially women, are experiencing their very own ground zero, um, in a way. One in which the last 20 years of rights, relative freedom and independence are being wiped out by a new Taliban entering government which, by the way, is formed by hardliners and individuals close to the old guard, some of them already known for attacks on U.S. forces, including Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is acting as Interior Minister and is the head of the Haqqani Network, uh, a group affiliated to the Taliban that has been linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K, as well as to various terrorist attacks that have caused American casualties, among others, namely the attacks in Kabul of 2008 and 2016. Despite the early reassuring by the Taliban that women will have their place in the new country and society they aspire to lead, no female representation figures among the lines of the new government, and the same is for members of the old Afghan government. Also, the Ministry of Women's Affairs seems to have been abolished and i might add predictably so the sharia law has been reinstated in afghanistan women have been banned from sports music is now forbidden in the country and women are once again regarded as subject to men and destined to a life of obedience and childbearing but these very women have been protesting in the past days all across the country against the new government 
protests have been dispersed with beatings and gunshots as recurring accidents and among other mistreatments is the imprisonment and beatings of journalists who were reporting on the marches. Yeah, and the US government has defended the withdrawal from Afghanistan, stating that there was never a better time to withdraw from the region and that the Afghan government had failed to come together for the betterment of their own people. The US argued that Afghanistan government lacked the will to fight the Taliban and that the US government had not intervened in Afghanistan for nation-building purposes, but to kill those that were responsible for the 9-11 attacks. NATO, however, was a bit more sober about the situation. They state that they never intended to stay in Afghanistan. However, there are many lessons to be learned by how quickly Afghanistan had fallen to the Taliban. Laura, can you, you know, just take us over the legitimacy of the Taliban and what the international community is generally saying about the situation? Well, first of all, it needs to be considered what this new situation is bringing to the international table. Experts believe that the new Taliban rule will bring an increase in terrorist threats, both inside and outside Afghanistan. The Taliban as a group, in fact, are very composite and they incorporate terrorist groups like the Akhani Network, we mentioned earlier, and other New officials from the government have been defined the worst of the worst uh, as hardliners with long streaks of violence and attacks on civilians. Now that one jihad has been won, higher expectations will be set on ongoing struggles, rising the chances of instability and further violence in the area. Not to forget the refugees that will most likely reach Europe across the various migratory routes. There's already a high level of concern for security in EU countries where the population and governments alike fear for a new wave of Islamic fundamentalist attacks. Overall, the Taliban still seek international recognition and legitimacy, as you pointed out, but so far it does not seem to be showing great compliance to its initial promises. In fact, uh, when they took power there, they stated that this time around they would have been more inclusive. Uh, they would have respected some international norms and guarantee female rights and representations. All these parameters so far have not been met and they've been quite disregarded, in fact. But despite this, China, for example, has shown willingness to cooperate with the new Afghan government going as far as welcoming new stability after weeks of anarchy in the country. Accusations had already been moved in the past for countries like China, Russia, Iran and Pakistan financing and supporting the Taliban. Now repercussions are also feared on the Indian front, especially for a revival of tensions in Jammu and Kashmir the territory contested between India and neighbouring Pakistan. Overall, on the wake of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, Afghanistan still represents a source of instability for both its neighbours and the international community, with the population once again living under the strict rule of the Taliban, almost like the past 20 years never existed. But for sure, more developments will follow and more debate will come on the acceptance and legitimacy of this government in the next few weeks. 
Yes, most certainly. Uh, moving on to France, the French Supreme Court ruled on the 7th of September that Lafarge cement Syria was complicit in crimes against humanity. And between 2012 and 2014, the company had paid terrorist groups in Syria so that it could keep operations in the country after one of its plants had been captured by terrorist group in the region. Despite knowing that the funds could be used for terrorist activities that violated human rights, Lafarge funneled some 13 million euros to the terrorist groups. The case was brought in 2016 by 11 former employees of Lafarge together with some NGOs. Yes, as you said, the cement multinational corporation um, has been accused of these multi-million payments to militant groups, including ISIS, which makes them complicit of human rights abuses and war crimes. More specifically, these relations were based on accords that, given due payment, would allow the company to maintain the facilities active uh, that would protect its businesses and the travel of its employees so they would be free to come and go from the area without fearing attacks from the groups. As you mentioned, yes, 13 million euros have been allegedly paid to ISIS and other armed groups that were operating around the border between Syria and Turkey. And charges, as mentioned, account for complicitly, even without intention, of crimes against humanity, which include the executions ISIS has made us all accustomed to, sadly said, uh, over the past decade or so. Yes, and Lafarge has stated that they will continue to cooperate with the judicial authorities in de- denying financing terrorism, and they argue that they paid a middleman to negotiate with the armed groups so that there is free movement of goods and stuff, as you have alluded to. The former company CEO, Bruno Lafort, is charged alongside with eight other company executives with financing a terrorist group. It should be noted that Lafarge is not the first multinational company to be accused of such crimes. For instance, um, Shell was taken to court in the U.S. after accusations that the company had aided and abated extrajudicial killings, torture, rape, and crimes against humanity in the Niger Delta in the 1990s. The case of Lafarge is a very interesting case. Um, we, we really do not have much clarity for now if the chief the executives are going to face criminal liabilities within uh, the French legal system. However, looking at the magnanimity of the crime, it is uh, quite likely that where France fails to prosecute the senior executives, the ICC might also get involved because this is a crime which is within the remit of the ICC and France is also a state party uh, to the Rome Rome statute. Yeah, um, on top of this... Uh, A sharp condemnation has come from NGOs and international organizations with them considering this might be a step in the direction of greater persecution elsewhere for companies complicit of violence and human rights violations. One of the scenarios considered most plausible is a greater attention for companies operating in China, which have been accused of facilitating or turning a blind eye to the ongoing ethnic cleansing um, operated by the regime towards the Uyghur Muslim minority. Over the years, many reports and investigations have shed light over the strict agenda followed by the Chinese government to eradicate the minority from its population, 
which uh, included separating children from their parents, secluding members of this community into labor camps and carrying out re-educational programs to eradicate the very cultural identity of this minority. In many occasions, businesses have been called out for their ties with China and their silence when it comes to the ethnic cleansing of the Uyghurs. Um, and a ruling such as this one could easily pave the way to more accountability in greater regards to ethical businesses internationally. Yeah, it's really quite interesting case for business and human rights. And moving on to Guinea, there's been a military coup that overthrew President Alpha Conde on the 5th of September. The military overthrew President Alpha Conde on the 5th of September, arguing that President Alpha Conde was violating human rights, disrespecting democratic principles, and brought poverty on the general citizenry through financial mismanagement. President Conde had amended the constitution last year so that he could run for a third term. The amendment was initially rejected by people, but as usual, he deployed military forces to crush demonstrations and was accused of using the coronavirus pandemic to crack down on free speech. Yeah, during his time at the lead of the country, uh, Guinea became a major exporter of bauxite, especially to China, although its mining has had repercussions on the lives of the rural communities. Loose land protection laws haven't been enough to stop companies from taking advantage of the local population by expropriating ancestral farmlands in return for little compensation. Mining operations have also deeply disrupted the lives of the people as they have impacted the air quality and water supplies. Although Guineans took to the streets to celebrate the removal of President Conde, the international community is not on the same page. For instance, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the coup and called for the release of President Conde. The African Union called for an urgent meeting to address the situation in Guinea, and ECOWAS, the regional West African body, suspended Guinea from the regional bloc and called for a return to constitutional order. The European Union also condemned the coup and called for the release of President Conde and asked the junta government to respect the rule of law. France and the United States echoed similar sentiments. However, the coup's architect had links to France and the United States military, and this has risen suspicions that you know, this is some form of France and the United States intervening in Guinea. Some are arguing that the imperialist footprints of France and the United States are once again written all over the coup. There have been also arguments from other quarters of society stating that regional groups such as ECOWAS and African Union at this stage can be able to foresee any military coups and that, you know, when a, a, a president is amending the constitution or is going in an undemocratic way, they should be able to call him to order so that they can be able to avoid such coups instead of intervening at the last minute. Despite this international response, soon after the coup, Damboya appeared on TV to reassure the population, stating that from now on, there will be no more personalization of power, which will instead be entrusted over the people. He went on to promise a government of national union while the constitution has been suspended for the time being. This is the latest of a long list of coups that over the years and decades have shaped the African continent. 
widespread poverty, weak or corrupt governments, lack of infrastructure or proper information are shared traits across many African countries, creating the conditions for unstable rule and higher chances of power grabs. The number of coups has remained more or less consistent during the second half of the 20th century, recently dropping to an average of two a year, with trends uh, tending to go higher in the past year, past uh, in the past months. Ultimately, eradicating poverty and strengthening institutions would be the answer to African nations' stability, yet a solution does not seem to be in sight. And on a different note, over the past two weeks, many have expressed their outrage and concern for a recent decision by the Supreme Court in the US to not block Texas lawmakers from banning abortion in the state. With a final vote of 5-4, to four, the overly conservative group of justices of the Supreme Court, whose makeup was fairly influenced by Trump's time in office, as many would remember, the new law now makes over 85% of abortions illegal in the state. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the 1st of September that they would not be blocking the anti-abortion law in Texas while the constitutionality of the law is considered. So the Supreme Court stated that while it's this law, the constitutionality of this law is being considered, they will not be blocking the anti-abortion law in Texas. The anti-abortion law in Texas was introduced in May by Governor Greg Abbott and it will prohibit abortions as early as six weeks. The law has been viewed as a potential threat to Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Judgment, which recognizes the right to abortion and restricts anti-abortion laws across the United States. Other Republican states such as Georgia, Kentucky and Ohio have introduced similar laws, but these laws have yet to be implemented as they are being challenged in court. The decision has stunned many um, who, as you mentioned, have deemed the law unconstitutional as it would prevent women from exercising their rights away from public scrutiny. The Department of Justice itself was extremely surprised by this decision, especially under the light of previous rulings. Despite all that, while Attorney General Mary Garland expressed his concern over an act that potentially endangers the, the constitutional principles of the nation, which should be feared regardless of party affiliation in his own words, the Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit against Texas among a general fear for more states to follow its example, as you were mentioning earlier. Following the increasing pressure, President Biden also declared a whole-of-government response to this decision uh, by the Supreme Court, defining it as an open aggression of women's rights. Mounting fear is also directed at federal responsibilities, as this situation makes the personnel liable for carrying out their care obligations. The situation remains tense, and so does the debate over this move. Something that I personally believe is important to always bear in mind uh, when discussing topics like this is that restrictions targeting abortions almost never result in less procedures being carried out. It simply denies women and girls a safe option, endangering their health and their lives, besides robbing them of the freedom of their very own bodies. Plus, it makes this decision 
virtually impossible as by six weeks many don't even realize to be uh, pregnant or at what stage their pregnancy might be. Yes, certainly. Uh, the law in Texas was drafted in such a way that it is very difficult to challenge. For instance, it prohibits officials in the state from enforcing the abortion ban, but allows citizens to sue abortion providers, which makes it difficult for those in support of reproductive rights to sue officials in Texas, since they are not the ones that are enforcing the ban. The law allows anyone to bring a lawsuit against abortion providers and those who aid in abating abortion after six weeks. This entails that anyone can be able to sue abortion clinics, doctors, and people helping a woman get an abortion, and the person is entitled to $10,000 if they win the lawsuit. This has sent a chilling effect to abortion providers and human rights groups who have argued that this will only lead to unsafe abortions, as you have alluded, Laura. The leader of the Democratic House and Speaker Nancy Pelosi has stated that Congress will vote on a reproductive rights bill. But there is a general understanding that the bill might not pass the Senate, and therefore this could be a fetal exercise. Um, generally speaking, we have also seen leaders such as Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez slamming the Texas governor, arguing that you know this law is generally in open defiance of the Constitution. Talking about being pro-life, um, should this not mean making people live theirs freely or live them at all? I think I'll just leave that thought here. Well, this is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you found this interesting, please do share it on your social media and remember to tag us. If you want more of this content, visit our website at humanrightspulse.com and check out all of our colleagues' amazing work. And if you have any feedback or stories you would like to hear on our next episode, then get in touch. Take care and until next time.